Get your Bibles, if you will, and open to Psalm 73. If you've, um, if you've never read Psalm 73, boy, this is a great time to start. This is one of the Psalms that makes me love the book of Psalms. Psalm 73. I wonder if you knew something like this was even in the, um, in the scriptures. This is, um, this is one of the Psalms that is not written by David. It's written by Asaph. And um, Asaph was one of the priests in David's uh, kingdom. Um, but he writes, and I want to read the first 17 verses of Psalm 73. You stay with me as, as I do. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it, it endures forever. Guys, we have spent four weeks, four sermons on the subject of envy, and, and my, um, my purpose or my chief concern was not so much to, to tell you what envy is. I think you already know that. Um, my, my goal was to, to talk to you about the mechanics of envy, how it operates, what triggers it, what sustains it, what promotes it, all in the hope that we would see it in all of its ugliness. I, I mean, it is... Um, it's not called a green sin for nothing. But uh, so that we might see it in all of its ugliness and decide that we've got to do something about that in our own souls, in our own individual um, spiritual lives. We, we've got to ad- address this thing that somehow, sometimes consumes us, that we envy other people and, and covet their things and, and envy other things about them. So... Um, what, what my hope was is that as a result of seeing it in all of its heinousness, that we would decide, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how to attack this thing and to reduce it and to shrink it and, and, um, and to deal with it. 
Now, gang, uh, before we get started with that, because that's what we're going to try to do this morning, there's a couple of things that you've got to understand. I, I want you to notice that, that I said, I, I didn't say we're going to eliminate it. I said we're going to attack it. We're going to shrink it. We're going to, we're going to um, render it smaller. But I didn't say eliminate it, and, and I, I, I did so very self-consciously. Because nowhere does this book ever give me um, any kind of suggestion that I am going to be rid of that sin or any other sin this side of heaven. It, it does not teach me that there is the possibility of a sinless perfection over that one or any other one. It does state, this book does state, that that should be my goal. My goal is to eliminate sin in all of its ugliness, but it never promises me that I am going to be successful eliminating it perfectly, at least this side of heaven. The goal is to eliminate it, but the goal is fulfilled in heaven. But we can certainly attack it. And by what I've just said, I hope that you have not heard me suggesting or implying that somehow the Bible is trying to tell you it's no big deal. You know, you get a pass. Um, relax, you know. No, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible never says that either. It is a big deal. Um, sin is a big deal. And we're also ravaged by the fall that sin has taken hold in, in, in very, very profound ways. The Bible doesn't say relax over our battle with sin, but it doesn't promise you that we're going to eliminate it completely. And that's something you got to keep in mind. It, it is a battle. Um, It's a serious battle, but winning it completely is something that will only be experienced later. Now, that's the first thing. Second thing, in this battle against envy, guys, your culture is an enemy. The, the culture in which we find ourselves um, has a message for us. And it's a, it's a subliminal kind of message that detonates way down deep in the soul. And here's what the message is. You deserve better. You deserve more. I mean, um, the American dream is get more, get better, uh, move beyond, you know. And so the, the suggestion is, or the implication is, if I can only have one more, or maybe that, or if I could get a new car, or um, uh, maybe a new spouse, maybe another house, maybe another child. Um, but, but you deserve that. You deserve to have more, and to have better, and to have bigger. And so the, um, the culture, when it comes to fighting this thing in our own souls... The culture is, is going to, is going to be one of your biggest problems because there's this message. And you get it about 300 times a day in every piece of uh, marketing and advertising that you deserve better. And, and uh, the fact that, uh, you, that you are in such a state, it's not your fault because you deserve better. And gang, I, I mean, the, the, if you want any evidence, just look at the, the, the amount of debt that all of us have uh, incurred 
Um, and the number of credit cards that keep showing up in your mailbox uninvited. Um, encouraging you to have more and better and bigger and another one, etc. So, the, the, the culture is, is a great enemy here, guys. Now, one other thing, and then we'll get started. I want you to, I want you to hear something that Paul says, um, and, and you know this. I mean, you've heard this before. This is in Philippians chapter 4. Um, it's, it's one of those verses that we kind of memorize all the time, but it's Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what Paul says. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. <laughs> oh, to be that content. In, in, in plenty and in want, in hunger and in need, in good and bad, I am, I've learned all that God would give me, that, that, that gift of contentment. Surprise, surprise, ladies and gentlemen, it's not a gift. Contentment is not a gift. It's a learned behavior. You notice what he says, I have learned. It's a learned behavior, guys. Now, I say that to say this, because this is hugely important in this battle, guys. Years ago, there was a country and western song. You know, I'm not a country and western fan, nor do I watch NASCAR. And I'm not sure that I can be friends of anyone who does. Um, but, but, um, but there was this country and western song that, that, uh, it was years ago, years ago, and, and I, I didn't like the song, but I loved the main line. And, and the main line was, honey, this ain't no thinking thing. <laughs> okay, we're about to, you know, we're supposed to get into a relationship of, I guess, love, but don't worry, honey. This ain't no thinking thing. Here's my point. Contentment is. Contentment is a thinking thing, ladies and gentlemen. In this particular battle in which we find ourselves, the battle of, uh, against envy, this thing we're going to attack, we're going to develop some kind of battle plan to, to attack envy, this is a spiritual battle. And so often a spiritual battle, can I, can I read you one of the things that Paul says? He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. Do you see what he's saying? In spiritual battles, there's no secret little formula that will allow us to, you know, apply it and voila. There's no gimmicks. There's no gimmicks, guys. I got no gimmicks for you this morning. What I do have is a thinking thing. I have something. The scripture offers us... um, Insights so that we might win in this particular battle. And um, that's what I got for you. Because spiritual battles are not waged with the kind of warfare that you might have found elsewhere. Primarily, ladies and gentlemen, this battle is going to be won or lost 
in the way that you approach it, in the way that you think about it. Okay? By the way, that's not true of just envy. It's true of every spiritual battle. Okay. So um, I said a couple of weeks ago, actually I said it twice. I said that um, envy usually involves a breakdown of faith. Um, every time I envy, every time I covet, I demonstrate that I'm out of harmony with God. I'm, at, I'm in disharmony with God. It is a breakdown of faith. And so the solution then becomes a reconstruction of faith. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to reconstruct it so that we can address this particular uh, enemy of our soul. This particular one. There's lots of them. But this particular one known as envy, okay? This is a reconstruction project that I've got for you this morning. It's going to start like this. Does the name Dan DeHaan ring a bell with anybody? Uh, You may not recognize that name, but if you lived in Atlanta about... 30 years ago, you would recognize the name Dan DeHaan. Dan DeHaan uh, started a Bible study for men in Atlanta, and it was enormous. It's still going today, although Dan DeHaan is dead. Dan DeHaan was killed. I want to say he was killed in an airplane crash. It was either an airplane crash or a car wreck. I think it was an airplane crash that Dan DeHaan was killed. It was about the same time Keith Green was killed. Do you remember that name, Keith Green? Killed an airplane? Because I, I, I don't think I'm confusing those two. I think both of them were killed in plane crashes. But Dan DeHaan was a great gift to the church. I've got a set of his tapes in a little plastic folder that I listen to probably once every five or six, eight, ten years or so. They're some of the most profound stuff I've ever heard. He was asked to speak at a conference, uh, a Ben Lippin conference. Does that ring a bell? Ben Lippin? Anyway, it's over in North Carolina. But he was asked to speak at a conference. And um, he had five sermons that he was going to preach, five sermons. And so in his first sermon, he, he, um, he comes to the podium, and uh, he opens this way. You know, as a, as a preacher slash speaker myself, you know, we kind of try to like to, you know, connect with the audience and, uh, you know, tell a little joke or, you know, do something that would allow us to connect with the audience. Um particularly if they're strangers. They don't know who you are, and the audience is somewhat reserved. And So anyway, but Dan DeHaan goes to the microphone, and in his first sentence of his first sermon of a five-sermon series, this is what he said. This is his opening line. He said, You have no right to happiness. You have no right to happiness. And then he goes on to say, or he goes on to explain, I'm not saying I hope you're unhappy. In fact, I hope just the opposite. I hope you are happy. I'm not saying that unhappiness is a mark of spirituality. No, no, no. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the number one sin of the Christian is that we're not happy. But it, it, it's not that I want you to be unhappy or saying that you shouldn't be happy or I want you to be unhappy. I'm simply saying it's not a right. You have no right. Uh, it's not a right that you can claim and say happiness is something that I deserve. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but um, I think somebody didn't tell you the truth. I hope you are happy. I, I, along with Dan DeHaan, I hope that you're gloriously happy. I'm simply here to tell you that in this battle with um, envy, one of the first places to start as we reconstruct faith is to tell you you have no right to it. That needs to sink in. I want you to hear a, a statement that Jacob made. Remember Jacob? He was, the, he was a bad boy, and finally as he got better. Towards the end of his life, he, he, he makes this statement, which he says, um, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Do you, you, you understand what that? He's, towards the end of his life, he crossed the Jordan. He said, when I first crossed the Jordan 30 years ago, the only thing I had was a stick, my staff. And now I'm crossing the Jordan to go back and look at me. I've got a, I've got family that's so big and flocks so large that we have to divide them up into two, into two camps to get them across the river. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to me. Guys, is that not a great outlook on life? I am not worthy of anything that I have in my possession. Everything that I'm enjoying now is something that you granted me. Guys, do you realize that the Bible says that sleep, 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 you know what that is? That sleep is a gift. (laughs) That thing that we've come to just assume The Bible describes it as a gift. Do you know that it describes breath? Acts 17, verse 25, that God grants breath. Take a long, deep draft of breath into those lungs of yours. Guys, you know where that came from? Now, the same thing is true of happiness. You happy? I'm glad. I hope you all are. I think one of the better testimonies that we can have before a watching world is a bunch of happy people. But if you are, it's a gift, not a right. And so when I begin to strive towards this contentment thing that I don't have because I'm so envious, that's a first place to start. I have no right. I I, I hope I get to enjoy it, but it's not a right. It's a gift. Here's the second pillar as we try to reconstruct faith. we got to go quick, but um, the second thing. Guys, Jesus on a couple of occasions uh, talks to his disciples and he says, Now listen, uh, you should be anxious for nothing. Don't Don't be full of worry and fear and all that business. You know, he says that a couple times. And, um... And I'm reading to you from Luke chapter 12, and he says, um, um, Oh, you have little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor to be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Now, here's my point, guys. The second pillar in this reconstructed faith is grasping the truth of God's omniscience. 
Gang, those things that are, that are so needed by us, your heavenly Father knows that. Jesus grounds his plea to his people to not worry and not be anxious in the fact of God's omniscience. Now, guys, I'm a father. I had three girls, and, and I may not have been completely out of contact or out of touch with what my girls needed. I may have. Probably was. But your heavenly father isn't. Gang, could I, could I make this application, and, and this will really make you uncomfortable, but I, I think that one of the reasons that so many of us find it so hard to give is because we don't believe that. We don't believe that God knows what I need. And so because he doesn't, I'm going to have to handle this, and I'm going to have to hold on to certain things because I alone am aware of everything that I need. I am suggesting that the second pillar of a reconstructed faith is a confidence that God is aware. He is completely mindful of everything that I really need. Now, let's move to the third pillar of this reconstructed faith. And to do that, we're going to go back to our text in Psalm 73. What do I do with my envy? Um, how do I, how do I, what do I do with it? Well, I want you to notice what this, what this Psalm says, guys. He says, I, I mean, he says in verse three that he was envious of the arrogant. And he describes all that in, in just wonderful detail. You know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of them prospering, and I'm not. It's what the psalm says, guys. I'm sick and tired of them, their eyes bulging with fatness. And he, and he even says, you know, I, I have, in verse 13, I have kept my heart clean. I, 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 all in vain. It's all in vain. The whole thing. My, my being a righteous man, it's all wasted. Because look at him. He is um, acting like a dumb brute beast, he says himself. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. (laughs) Guys, um, this man, Asaph, says, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with envy to the point of just being a dumb brute beast. Until, until I went into the sanctuary. Now, first of all, what's the sanctuary and what happens there? What is the, you know, the sanctuary. It's just the place where Israel worshipped. It was mobile when they were in the wilderness. But when they finally settled in Jerusalem, it became a permanent building. Solomon ultimately built it in the, it in the temple. But the, but the sanctuary was a place of worship. It was where the holiest of holies were and the lambs were slain and all that business. It was, it was the central place of, of the people of God and their worship. And, and Asaph says, I was a dumb brute beast. I was eat up with envy until, until I went into the sanctuary. And here's what happens in the sanctuary, guys. This is Psalm 63, 2. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Guys, at some point, You will have to bring your envies and you will have to bury them in the things that you know to be true about the nature of God. 
the psalmist says, I, I, in your sanctuary, I beheld your power and your glory. I'm going to have to take my envies and I am going to have to sink them. Bury them into, into what I know to be true about the power and the glory of God. All those questions that I've got about his sovereignty and his, and his goodness and his, and his, uh, provision and, and, uh, whether there were some kind of mistakes that were made and, and, the, and the, all those good things went to the wrong address and, and, and what about me and why them and all of those questions. Sooner or later, you're going to have to take them into a place of worship and you're going to have to bury them. In the things that you know to be true about your God. The psalmist says, I was an envious jerk until. Until I went into the sanctuary and I began to be reminded of things that are true about God. Let me ask you, my brother and sister in Christ. Tell me, what has been your experience with God over the past few years? Has he been mean, mean to you? Has he been cruel? Um, what is it that God did promise us? Well, he, he promised that all things work together for good. Well, has he kept that promise? Um... What do I know? What do I know to be true about the, the glory and the power of God? I, I'm saying, guys, that we're going to have to view our envies through the lens of God's goodness, His greatness, His power, and His glory. Sooner or later, you're going to have to bury your envies in the nature of God. There was one other thing that he says in Psalm 73, 17. He says, um, I was envious until I went into the sanctuary and I, I discerned their end. One of the, another part of your worship experience needs to be, ladies and gentlemen, that you think for a moment about eternal matters. That is, you're going to have to consider eternity. You're going to have to remember and be reminded that earth is not heaven. You're going to have to take a refresher course over what it is that's promised to us. What is awaiting us, ladies and gentlemen? What is awaiting us? A resurrected life. Is that something? Is that good enough for you? Because that's what this psalmist did. He was uh, wrestling around with, um, with his envies until he went into the sanctuary. One other thing and I'm done. There's another thing that goes on in the sanctuary. It's the sacrifice for sin. So here he goes into the sanctuary, considers the power and the glory of God, and remembers the sacrifice. What sacrifice is that? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, it's the sacrifice where the altogether innocent Lamb of God stood in a place where you were supposed to stand and emptied himself so that you might be forgiven. That, that sacrifice. Guys, remember last week when I said something about Genesis 3? And I said, um, I, I said, once sin entered, Adam and Eve were self-aware, and as a result of being self-aware, all of these interpersonal 
anti-community relationship sins began, like jealousy and envy and coveting and all that business, came as I became self-aware. Now, guys, I say that to say this. Think about that sacrifice again. What does the New Testament tell us about that sacrifice? Well, it tells us this. A whole lot, but it tells us this. That Jesus Christ emptied himself. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I'm the selfish one. I'm the self-aware one. I'm the one eat up with concerns about self-promotion. But to save me, the Savior had to empty himself. Guys, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, one of the things that it does is that it tells you that God is not envious of you. God does not begrudge your happiness. In fact, he's so concerned that you find happiness that he made the provision necessary so that you could be. Gang, it's Satan who can't bear to see you happy. Not God. Satan saw Adam and Eve happy in the garden, and he set about to destroy that. Jesus is the one who said, I come so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's the one that emptied himself of self so that he could um, become sin for me and give me the, the possibility of really having a life that was enjoyable. Gang, um, what do I do with my envies? Well, I, I think you need to think through a couple of things. First of all, you have no right to happiness. Everything that you've got, you've received by a gift. Secondly, God is completely aware of all your needs. And then, with that in mind, you need to go into a sanctuary and bury all those things and what you know to be true about God, who He is and what He's done. Um, they, they get lost in considering the great sacrifices of Christ for my sin. And as I do that, envy begins its long, slow, melting process. And I, I have to suggest that once is not going to be enough. This is a, this is a, a discipline, a procedure that you're going to have to follow, maybe daily, maybe hourly, as you wrestle through the things that consume you. Ladies and gentlemen, the one who longs for you to taste sweet happiness is the one who made provision for the sin that keeps you from that happiness. Go consider him. Go bury your envies in what you know about what who he is and what he's done.
Father, I pray that those thoughts might help your people, that they might um, remind us of things that we've forgotten, that we might have a refresher course in what is really real, um, not what is what is vanishing and vaporous, not what the uh, the world of marketing will tell us we need. Might these things, O oh God, help us think through again that which will lead us to the place of a glad and humble submission to a God who is good, a God who has known our needs and has made provision for every one of them. We, uh, we pray that the Spirit of God will lead us to that sweet place. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.